Hello and welcome to the First Take podcast. Um, my name's Simon King. I'm an executive editor at First Word Pharma Plus. Um, I'm here today with my colleague, um, Michael Flanagan. Michael, how are you doing? Not bad. How are you doing, Simon? Not too bad, thanks. Um, just to give a, a brief overview to, to people who haven't listened to any of our previous incarnations of this podcast, um, the first take is our weekly roundup of um, what we think are the key stories uh, in the pharmaceutical industry over the past uh, seven days. Um, what we'll try to do on a weekly basis is go through those stories, pick out uh, the angles that we think are interesting, um, you know, maybe drop in some, some bits of analysis that we've done over the past week, looking at physician surveys or speaking to um, key opinion leaders or management at pharma companies, etc. cetera. Um, but anyway, let's crack on. Um, it's been uh, a pretty busy week as it seems to be in pharma most of the time uh, at the moment. And obviously, uh, you know, the backdrop to, to, to a lot of stuff that's going on is the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, Michael, let's talk a little bit about news this week with regards to what's going on on the vaccines front. I mean, I want to caveat to listeners. Um, I, I don't think we're, we're going to, you know, get into the weeds of looking at you know, different efficacy rates of vaccines and necessarily how vaccine programs are being implemented and certainly not in the the, the, the kind of politicization of, of vaccine programs. There's been obviously a lot going on in, in Europe at the moment. But I thought what was interesting this week with Pfizer announcing its fourth quarter results is we got a bit of a sense of, of, of what Pfizer is one of the companies at the kind of forefront of this emerging market, what they're expecting to make in terms of revenue this year from the vaccine that they've developed with BioNTech? Yeah, I mean, basically they, what did they say? They said um, they gave us a, a revenue number of 15 billion in vaccine sales for, for 2021, which obviously is pretty eye-popping. But at the same time, uh, a lot of analysts think they could do double that, <laughs> which which is, is uh, pretty incredible, um, but it makes sense since they only had what there's hundred, they only, the revenue guidance was only for doses that they've, they've actually contracted for. So 780 million. That's I correct. Think. Yeah. Uh, and then, so, but they've got the capacity for 2 billion, they think this year. So yeah, the, you know, obviously that's a huge number um, for, for their earnings this year. The big question of course is how long and how durable this this sort of revenue stream will prove to be um, and obviously that's anybody's guess at this point but it seems like just based on their um, you know body language and, and some of the things they said it seems like they're getting a little more sort of um, I don't know if bullish is the right word because we're talking about a pandemic and certainly nobody wants it to extend uh, beyond you know tomorrow but it sounds like they're getting a little more um, confident that the revenue stream might last a little longer than just you know a year or two yeah sure I mean obviously the backdrop to that is partially this idea of uh, these kind of variants um, of the virus which are, are appearing there's been lots of you know talk about the variant in the UK I think there's one in South Africa that's of you know, some concern or some interest and in one in Brazil. I mean, obviously, I suppose this isn't an entirely new concept that this is a kind of a durable revenue stream because, 
you know, one of the unknowns is that we just we just are un unaware at the moment how long, you know, these vaccines are going to provide, you know, the level of protection that they appear to provide. And, um, you know, we, we may well need, uh, you know, an annual an annual booster, uh, regardless of, of the effects of these variants. Um, obviously, the other thing that's going on in the background this week that I think, you know, is, is, is pretty interesting, pretty exciting. Um, we've seen another of a number of other big pharma companies kind of step up and say that they will help to produce um, these vaccines. So, you know, I mean, it, the, the two billion doses that Pfizer is talking about in 2021 is is pretty impressive. But obviously, you know, there, there's been lots of talk about, you know, the world needing as many doses of these vaccines as they can get their hands on. Um, I think it's obviously the other the other thing that's probably worth mentioning before we move on to another topic is um, certainly of interest to, to to anyone listening in the UK. Um, AstraZeneca presented some or present published some new preliminary data this week, which appears to be supportive to the idea that uh, leaving a longer dosing interval between the two doses of the vaccine that it's developed with uh, with Oxford University appears to be um, a, appears to be, you know, improve the efficacy of the vaccine. Um, obviously, um, it's been widely reported that that's the approach that the the UK government has uh, ha has taken um, in a bid to accelerate uh, the, the national vaccination program that's that's happening in this country. Um, so that's positive data. But but as with with most of of the discussion around these vaccines, you know, the data is is accumulating all the time, and it, it's kind of you know shaping uh, the discussion as it appears. So. That's definitely something that we'll be we'll be keeping a close a close eye on um, in the coming weeks and months. Um, Michael, really interesting today. It's been announced that um, Kenneth Fraser will uh, retire as the CEO of Merck and Co um, in the middle of the year. I mean, this isn't massively surprising news. It's been kind of telegraphed by the company to investors over the past year or so. Um, there's been hints that that he was going to step down. Um, he's going to be replaced by Robert Davis, who is the current um, CFO at Merck. Um, but this brings an end to a a ten year um, tenure as as CEO. It, it definitely feels like it's the end of an era for Merck, and quite a, a significant um, point for the pharma industry as a whole. I would say. Yeah, you know, he's been there as CEO 10 years. Obviously, that's a, a pretty long tenure um, relative to some of his peers. Um, he's obviously had a had a successful run, especially lately. You know, obviously, there were some challenges early on. But, you know, the, the serendipitous success, I think, as you wrote in your Friday Five piece, the serendipitous success of Keytruda will go down uh, essentially – as his defining, you know, um, milestone, and there is his, you know, it'll define his career with with Merck, and uh, it's not a bad defining moment, <laughs> I guess, um, with the biggest selling drug, and you know, and the, as he hands this off to Robert Davis, perhaps the timing makes sense because um, it's not like Keytruda is going away tomorrow, so he's giving um, his successor some time. Uh, for some succession planning, not just for him, <laughs> but also for Keytruda. 
um, which has always been the question mark with Merck for the last couple of years. You know, the, the double-edged sword of success is, well, what are you going to do next? So, you know, that's going to be the, uh, that was the question for Kenneth Frazier. And uh, now it's still going to be the question for, for Robert Davis. Yeah. 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 I mean, he made a great quote in, I mean, earlier I was listening on, earlier on to, to Merck's um, fourth quarter earnings call, because obviously the, the announcement about his departure coincided with the company reporting its results today. I mean, he made a great qu quote, which kind of, I think, sums him up as uh, as being the kind of guy that he's he is and he's viewed by a lot in the industry, you know, that, that no one in the company was really smart enough to know that that when Merck bought Sharing Plow back in 2009, you know, they were they they, they essentially got their hands on Keytruda um, before they really knew that they got their hands on Keytruda. Um, and uh, th I mean, th th this this idea that I mean, I think Sharing Plow actually got their hands on it by acquiring a Dutch company called Organon, and this idea that you know this drug which has gone on. I mean, what was it today? They announced sales of a just shy of fifteen billion dollars for last year. I mean, it's it's obviously been a huge success over the last five years. This drug, um, the idea that you know, not yeah, that it, you know, it arrived in their research labs by chance. I think is and and the fact that that, that Ken Fraser is is happy to acknowledge that I think kind of um, you know marks him out as 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 the kind of person and man and and. An almost figurehead that he's become for the industry, particularly in recent years. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, you kind of just alluded to it. I think, you know, maybe offsetting that or the counter view to that is, you know, it, it, it came to Merck by chance, but but both Ken Fraser and um, Roger Palmutter, who's, who's, who, who's actually standing down as well as, as the head of R&D, I think the idea that they recognized the potential of Keytruda and then kind of almost took on a, a kind of military-esque uh, investment program to throw it into, you know, so many kind of different drugs for different tumor types in parallel. That has really been key to positioning, positioning it as the kind of the go-to PD-1, PDL one inhibitor in what is, you know, what has become a pretty crowded field, to be honest. And I, I, I think that strategy of going in early and, and, and running these trials in parallel, um, I mean, it, it, it's paid off um, amazingly for Merck. But, you know, as you said, it will be, um, it will be really interesting to see what they do next. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, Fraser came in two years after Merck had bought Sharing Plow. And, um, you know, and he's he's made some pretty negative comments about large scale M and A in the last ten years, and and I think he I think I'm right in saying he made another one today. You know, he he still feels that those large you know uh, mega M and A deals are not necessarily great for innovation. Um, so it it will be interesting to see what his successor does. Um, you know, Fraser, you know, he did a couple of smaller deals back in 2014. Um, you know, Merck tried to get into the what was then the, the big push for hepatitis C drugs by buying Idenix, and it, it didn't really work out for them. Um, but obviously, that's in the past. The, the, the future now is, is like you said, you know, where does Keytruda go from here and, and what opportunities does it does it bring for Robert Davis to to maybe position Merck uh, for the next kind of, uh, you know, 
the next part of its of, it, of its history, I guess, coming forward. Um, I think we can't really speak today without talking more about about Biogen. Um, obviously, this. I mean, we're not talking about Biogen. We're talking about about Biogen specifically in relation to azucanumab, which which is its Alzheimer's disease drug. It's been developing this drug for quite a few years now in 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 collaboration with with ISI. Um, obviously, last year it was submitted to regulators. We heard at the at the very end of last week that the FDA has announced that they won't be making a decision whether to approve aducanumab by the end of March. They've pushed that back by three months to June, um, and. I think, you know, obviously that's avoided the worst case scenario of them just rejecting the drug outright. Um, for listeners who, who are not quite aware, um, a panel of experts that the FDA convened last year unanimously agreed that the drug shouldn't be approved. Um, so there's quite an interesting, appears to be quite an interesting disconnect between the view of those experts and the view of the agency itself. Um, and Michael, I think, you know, this week, I know you were looking at Biogen's fourth quarter results, projecting what's going to, what the next year is going to look like. They don't seem to really be kind of shying away from the impact of this approval. They seem to be kind of putting it front and center for investors to see. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, you know, um, not just by what they're doing, which is um, building out their their infrastructure and preparing for what would be, you know, it'd be a um, complicated launch of a product that, you know, would have to go through the, the buy and build um, system and, you know, it would require a lot of education. Um, it's a drug that, you know, comes with some unique, unique side effects. There's a lot of, um, you know, it's it, the rollout will be a a big lift um, and they are preparing for that. You know, they're investing a lot of money in that. But then on the other side, the the rest of the business is not exactly, <laughs> you know, going um, gangbusters at the moment. So the M, their MS franchise, which they've known, they've been known for forever, um, is now in a rather precipitous um, fall because of generics um, and other competition. And then unexpectedly, their spinal muscular atrophy drug, Spinraza, which is, uh, you know, a, a, re a relatively new drug. I think it was approved four years ago or so. Year-over-year uh, -year sales dropped in for the fourth quarter. So, you know, their, their base business is clearly facing um, question marks and maybe even bigger question marks than before. Um, so if aducanumab does not get approved, you know, there's going to be some some big questions asked about where where Biogen goes. Um, I suppose we can get to that in a second. I'll throw one more thing in about <clears throat> the the delay. So I saw an inter interesting study uh, that was done uh, analysis, I guess you'd call it, by Evercore ISI's analyst Umar Rafet, who said he went through like 155, I think, um, adcoms, and he picked out the 26 instances where an adcom vote was super negative. Uh, and those are his words. Nine of those drugs were approved anyway, you know, over the recommendations of the adcom. So nine out of 26. So that's a data point in favor of Biogen. And then if you dig in further, 
of those 26 super negative votes, four of those had Padufa extensions, and three of the four got approved. <laughs> so it's a tiny N, and you know, obviously, doesn't really mean anything because every drug is is different and every review is different. But you know, it's a little something for for investors to get a little excited about. But back to the point: if Biogen, if this does not get approved, you know, all sorts of question marks are going to be raised about Biogen. Um, you know, I think a lot of analysts seem to think that it might be in play. You know for for a potential acquirer um to come in and buy it it's got some first in class you know it's always done the sort of first in class high risk high reward r d so it has that going for it but you know i guess i guess we'll see it's just the the, the big day has been pushed out till uh, june and you know it's sort of it feels like biogen's just sort of in a in a holding pattern until then yeah i mean Obviously, we had management speak at JP Morgan in January, and we've heard them speak this week announcing their quarterlies. I mean, to me, the mood seems quite bullish. I mean, I, I, I know, you know, farmer execs don't tend to let on too much in these situations because obviously the, the conversations they have with regulators are, you know, behind closed doors. But I mean, the, 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 the image that they're kind of projecting, I think, is is one of, of, of being quietly confident. You know, uh, again, that that's only my reading of it, and 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 I don't know, you know, how how accurate that would be, and how other people would 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 read the same things. Um, I mean, obviously, one of the interesting things they've done is this collaboration with with Sage. Um, last year, where they're you know they're waiting now on some phase three readouts for. For a depression drug, I mean, again, not not really shying away from from the high risk kind of high reward approach that has sort of characterised Biogen. Um, I mean, one thing that I, I think be interesting we did we did run a, a physician views survey recently where we fielded that to to to, to neurologists and psychiatrists who specialise in in treating patients with dementia and Alzheimer's. You know. A majority did want the drug to be approved. Um, there does seem to be this this sense of, you know, the unmet need for Alzheimer's disease is so great. You know, why don't you approve the drug and let us decide whether you know we want to use it or there's a there's an opportunity for us to use it. Um, based on your conversations, I know you've spoken to a few kind of key opinion leaders. You know. Have you got any idea or any sense of how the drug could be used if it is approved? Um, the the KOLs I've spoken with suggested that it'll be, you know, it'll be sort of a slow intro, a slow rollout, a slow ramp, if you will. Um, you know, specialists will probably, um, you know, they, they will be aware of the data. They'll be aware of the side effects. They'll be aware of how to use it. It's not going to be an easy drug to use. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's a, an infusion. Um, it comes with the uh, aria, the aria side effect, which is, you know, for somebody who's not aware of how to deal with it, might be a problem. So I think it's going to be, you know, a one of those things where it's really focused on specialists, and then, you know, from there, depending on people's response and and how sort of the the um, communications are between doctors and everything, I think that it, you know, it could expand out from there. Obviously, there's going to be more data coming for other 
uh, you know, antibodies against beta amyloid. There's uh, denanumab from Eli Lilly that's coming up and showed some interesting data recently that a lot of people think may actually help get uh, aducanumab across the finish line. Roche has some phase threes that are reading out soon. So, you know, these other readouts uh, may end up sort of playing into how, you know, the, into the interest level for, for aducanumab if and when it is approved. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll keep our eye on, on obviously what happens over the next three months um, in, in, in the lead up to that decision. Um, uh, just moving on, a couple more things we wanted to talk about this week. Um, it was announced yesterday that Jazz Pharmaceuticals um, is going to buy GW Pharmaceuticals for $7.2 billion. Um, for those who are, are not too gens up on, on what these two companies do, um, Jazz is a, a specialist pharma company. It's been focused in the last few years on sleep disorders and increasingly on the cancer market, where it's it's also done a, a few acquisitions. Um, GW Pharmaceuticals is, is known for um, marketing Epidiolex, which is uh, the first cannabis-based um, medicine approved by the FDA. Um, it's actually indicated for um, treatment-resistant seizures, which are associated with a, a number of, of rare conditions. I mean, one of them is, is, is Dravet syndrome. Um, it's a, I mean, I mean, Michael, I don't know how much you know about the deal. I mean, what I've read about it, it, it seems like analysts are pretty positive about this. Um, it, it feels like one of those acquisitions where, um, you know, it's kind of about moving value from the balance sheet to the income statement. You know, the revenues that the Epidiolex is, is bringing in seem sort of fairly durable. And I think there's a bit of hope that, you know, now that they've de-risked uh, the process of bringing that drug to market, hopefully there's other there's other similar drugs in the pipeline, which obviously Jazz is hoping to kind of replicate that process with. Right. Jazz has a, a track record of being, you know, very adept with its commercial, um, you know, marketing process. And, and uh, obviously it has an infrastructure in place for, for neurology. So it really does seem like a plug and play type um, block uh, bolt-on acquisition. I, I think the one thing that stood out to me about the deal was that if there was a company that seemed like it'd be the perfect um, acquisitor of GW Pharmaceuticals, it would be Jazz. Because, you know, GW, not that um, its Epidiolex has a, you know, a nefarious, you know, history or anything, but it just, it has the, it, it's connected with the, with the CBD and, you know, by extension, um, medical sort of marijuana and that sort of thing. It sort of has that that sort of feel, that vibe to it. Whereas jazz has made an absolute um, huge market uh, success, a commercial success out of a drug that before they got their hands on it and turned it into uh, a wildly successful drug for sleep disorders was sort of known as the, uh, the date rape, the date rape drug. Right. Um, so, you know, they clearly have a... Um, an expertise and a track record of taking drugs um, and not just drugs with sort of <laughs> strange uh, backstories, but, uh, you know, turning them into commercial successes in the neurology setting. So it just, it makes sense um, in okay. terms of who, who bought them. Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, it, it, it seems like analysts um, were, were, were kind of unanimously um, applauding the deal um, from, from what I saw. Um, 
And finally, um, I think, you know, it'd be remiss if we were to kind of completely overlook it. Um, last weekend was the, the World Conference on Lung Cancer um, meeting, obviously in current circumstances held in a, in a, virtual, meet, a virtual format as, as all medical meetings are and will be for the foreseeable future. Um, I mean, this meeting has kind of taken on, um, I suppose, a kind of a growing stature in recent years largely because you know we're seeing you know we've seen a lot of progress with with lung cancer and um and it's been a kind of a, an important battleground for the immunotherapies as well the data that that really stood out and that people were really waiting for at this year's event was the data for amgen's uh kras inhibitor uh sotorasib um the data looks pretty good i think it's a 37% um, response rate um in um relevant um non-small cell lung cancer patients so it's those with the uh what is it it's the kras um g well c <laughs> mutation i think it's about you know 15 percent of, of non-small cell lung cancer patients um but this seems like um you know when you kind of look at drugs that are in you know mid to late stage development uh, and, and the data is positive and you know we're assuming this will get approved by regulatory authorities you know the fda you know presumably going to be the first to, it feels like once this drug reaches the market it's going to be quite a big deal for lung cancer oncologists and patients you know it, it feels like this meets a, a need and um these targeted therapies really you know they do continue to be a an important component of the of the sort of therapeutic toolkit don't they yeah, for sure. I mean, I think if, and I think it's already in front of the FDA. So if and when it does get approved, yeah, it'll probably be one of those really fast, as opposed to something like an aducanumab that's going to be, you know, a sort of a slow burn. I'm sure this will hit the market running, and I'm sure Amgen will need and want it to because, you know, there's other um, KRAS, you know, next gen KRAS inhibitors in the pipeline that people are, um, you know, watching. So obviously they're going to want to establish themselves quickly, and obviously that's the sort of the the backdrop of their earnings was you know people they see this satorisab or how reset it will go with yours, um, you know the KRAS inhibitor. They've also got the tezepilumab program that seems to be coming along um, for severe asthma, and that'll be in front of FDA soon. <clears throat> so they've got these late stage programs. But at the same time, the the earnings was colored by, and you know this this um, this WGCLC, what was the meeting? W <laughs> tripping over LC. WCLC, right? The WCLC meeting was just a few days ahead of their earnings, um, and so Amgen's earnings was everybody was sort of looking to see is there going to be some more information on the KRAS or on on the uh, TSLP inhibitor, and there wasn't really. But what there was information was. Uh, on their um, earlier stage pipeline, a bunch of bites, these bispecific T-cell engagers, um, it sort of ran into troubles with safety issues, mostly related to, it sounds like, cytokine release syndrome. So, you know, they've got these late stage programs that are seemingly making headway, um, but, you know, behind that, their their earnings was sort of had a dark cloud over it because of all, you know, there was a, uh, at least one was shelved, another one was suspended, um, another one, and we're talking about bites here, another one had some, uh, I think was, you know, 
slowed down in or some sense. So it was just uh, an interesting um, earnings backdrop for for what's going on with Amgen. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, it, 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 the two drugs you mentioned, the asthma drug and obviously this this drug in lung cancer, it does seem like they are quite well positioned. But um, yeah, in, interesting from Amgen's perspective because I think there's you know maybe one of those companies that has been um, lacking kind of some of those big ticket innovative novel drug launches in recent years. So this this will will address that. Um, anyway. Um, thanks for taking some time out to chat with me today, Michael. And uh, thanks for everyone um, who's listened today. Um, stay safe in the current environment and um, we'll be back next week. So thank you. Cheers. Cheers.